Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio, talking to you, all of you from the Gulf to Canada and the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the globe. Big show. They always are. Lots to cover. We are going to be talking about, this is kind of segment two of our history of military preparedness in the United States and kind of where we are today. I'm going to recapsulate kind of the 2000s all the way up through Trump and now into our sorry current mess for you. I'm not sure you're going to be pleased when I'm done, but you need to know. We're going to talk about the Nord 2 and the Nord 1 gas and oil pipelines in Europe. You know, there's a lot of confusion. You hear the terms thrown out there and, you know, the uh, talking heads on media talk about this and that and I guess pretend to know a lot, whatever. I'm going to tell you what Nord 1 was, how it came about, why it is completely undermining the so-called sanctions that President Cadaver, Obama third term, is supposedly instituting for political purposes only, I might add. And I'm going to tell you about the Nord 2 project, which, (laughs) you know, because of political pressure, Cadaver shut down when Russia went into Ukraine, but is all ready to go. I mean, you know, turn one little, hit one little button, turn one little spigot, and Europe will be guzzling Russian stuff once again, you need to know how all this works because it affects your pocketbook. It affects inflation. It affects this country and its national security, which is being literally sold and squandered by traitorous people. And we're going to talk about our part five in getting organized, standing up, getting off the couch and doing something. Hello, knock, knock. Anybody home? The elections are six months away folks and let me tell you if we don't carry the house (laughs) this is going to be it's going to be a monumental problem if we carry both chambers so much the better it is critical it is up to you it is up to me it is up to us nobody else is going to get this done this show is going to tell you how to win elections hopefully you are organized you are split into your various groups and focusing on your aspects. You are all working as a team when you need to. You are getting yourself out there, recruiting new members, getting people registered to vote. And now I'm going to tell you the basics, anyway, of how to win the upcoming election. And then, of course, we're going to have our rat-a-tat-tat. But before we get to rat-a-tat-tat, I'm going to have for you what I've promised for two weeks. And that is kind of a economic tutelage, if you will. It is very important you understand what dynamics, at least on a macro level, the big picture, you know, pretend you're an eagle flying above all the graphs and charts and the different talking heads who say different things and the changing numbers and the lies that the government feeds you. I'm going to try and bring all this into perspective for you about where we are at right now and how it affects you, your house, your real estate, your investments, your food, your energy, your family security your freedoms. And I'm going to explain to you why the Fed, a lot of this is posturing, folks. The Fed is in a very difficult position that it and politicians for the last 20 years have put it in. 
Basically, we are in a period where we must inflate or die. And this rise in interest rates is not so much about inflation as it is about you, the middle class, and what their plans are for you. So let's get started. We're going to start with some founders quotes, you know, from your hayseed in Wyoming. We're beginning the Cowboys take for this week. And you know, I think when you hear all the stuff I'm going to talk to you about today, you'll agree that these quotes are quite apropos. So let's go back to Orwell. Now, he wasn't a founder, but he was prescient. He wrote 1984, famous book, in 1949. And boy, here we are. Quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And let's give you one more. And this is from Thomas Paine, the mentor of the founders. The greatest tyrannies are always perpetuated in the name of the noblest causes. Oh, how true is that? You know, the cloak and guise of the noble cause, the world is going to incinerate. you got to save your neighbor and be patriotic. Get the jab. You know, don't get COVID. Da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you got to trust your government because they're here to help you. Yeah. But before we get into our historical story of military readiness, let me tell you a little scene I happened on on the ranch. You know, it was apropos, and I think you'll I think you'll see what I mean. It is bitterly cold. Eight degrees, ten degrees, twenty degrees. I mean, it is not April out here. And unfortunately, we're not getting a lot of precipitation. Oh, a lot of blowing snow, but not more than a half an inch on the ground. Not good for dry country, very dry country, for this time of year and for any year. And I was out on the ATV. We're trying to get water going early because we don't think we're going to have a lot of water going this year. And we don't want it to, you know, what's bayou is gone forever, as a rancher says. So we're trying to get water early, which is a chore in 10-degree weather. And there was a freshly killed mule deer. Poor thing must have gotten run over by a truck out on the main road. And it was very fresh. And perched atop it, picking away with its sharp beaks and talons, was a bald eagle. And I'm watching, and all of a sudden through the grass, I see this yellow spotted form. And it was a bobcat. And he came up to within probably three or four feet of the carcass and obviously wanted his piece of the meat, so to speak. But the eagle didn't back down. It got up on its talons. It raised its wings. It uttered a piercing scream. And the bobcat turned tail and ran. And now, let's get into the historical story of military readiness. Let's go back to the Civil War. Lincoln was hopeful that a war between the states could be avoided. The Union, and he was confident in the Union's mighty ability to industrialize quickly and manufacture the weapons of war. But he was way behind on recruitment and trained general officers and enlisted men. And the beginning years of the war, the South kicked Union butt. And that was because his generals sucked. I mean, particularly like McClellan and all those guys. And his enlisted men were barely trained. Oh, they had great muskets, and they had lots of cannons, and they had the wagons. I mean, they had all the industrial stuff, but they didn't know how to use them. They didn't know how to employ them, and their generals had not a clue about strategy or tactics against the wide-ranging and quick-moving, lightning-striking forces of the South. But we didn't learn our lesson, because we were not prepared for World War I either. Uh, nobody thought we were going to get into World War I. In fact, before World War I started, nobody thought they were going to get into World War I anywhere. It was one of those things, and it's the setup, just like World War II, 
that's very similar to the geopolitical dynamics that are in play today, which is one of the reasons I'm bringing you these this series on the history of readiness of the military forces of the United States. And World War II, FDR kind of saw World War II coming. He was beginning to gear up the industrial might of the United States. There was a lot of Oh, cigar-filled room planning going on that was kept hush-hush from the public because, you know, everybody wanted peace. But America was once again unprepared. And once again, at least in the beginnings of the war, its relatively meager army and navy was decimated, starting with, of course, Pearl Harbor, who in their right mind, with hostilities ongoing in Europe, And in China, I've brought you those historical stories, and the Japanese flashing their sabers and Hitler beating the war drums, who in their right mind would line up eight battleships, nose to tail, stern to bow, (laughs) along two wharfs in a harbor that was virtually undefended. Got to think about that for just a moment. But that brings us to the modern times. Last week, I told you what readiness is. If you didn't listen to that show, please do. You can get all the shows on archives, all the historical stories. There's a lot of them. There's an historical story page. You can go back and see the fall of civilizations, the use of terror in war, the use of food as a weapon of war and a weapon of control, all sorts of historical stories. The history of education, the history of the Supreme Court, all of which are the basis and kind of the fulcrum for what we're experiencing today. History repeats itself if you let it. So I told you last week about how Clinton depleted the armed forces in the 1990s. I mean, it was shocking. It was shocking. And here we have Hillary thinking of running again. Oh, terrific. But in the 2000s, the military continued to decline under George Bush. You know, you think of George Bush as his great leader for the war on terror, etc. Well, Whether or not he was, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. He did one lousy job of keeping up military readiness and thinking about the real impacts of his policies on our military and therefore our national defense. You know, I told you about how many planes we went down, how many ships we went down last week. I mean, it's really kind of startling. And military readiness, folks, is vital. Because when you decline in military readiness, particularly in today's day and age, all your enemies, and we have many, know it. And it signals to the rest of the world that the United States is not prepared to defend its interests. And what happens then? Well, it's easy. Hostile nations are going to be more likely to lash out. China and Taiwan, China and Hong Kong, Russia and Ukraine, Iran and nuclear weapons. North Korea and nuclear weapons and testing. I mean, you can go down the list. It's just in your face. Clinton's degradation still continued. Maintenance is still inadequate. 23% of the Army's Chinook cargo helicopters, 19% of the Black Hawk helicopters, 16% of the Apache helicopters were not mission capable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it gets worse. Wait till we get to the rest of of the story on all this. America's military was aging rapidly, and it continues that process, alleviated only partially by Trump's four years in office. A lack of funding, an increased tempo of engagements, reduced forces, strains the military's ability to defend the United States. It's just that simple. Air Force fighter aircraft back then had decreased from 85 to 75% ready 
The average age of our fighters was 20 years old. They were designed for a 15-year life. I mean, does that kind of give you an idea? Amphibious ships were 27 years old. The average life of those ships was 30 to 35 years. The same with planes. Listen, the Air Force at that time said it didn't want a new bomber into the year 2037, by which time the B-52, folks, would be 90 years old. Think about that. They did come up with a new B-2 bomber, but as I told you last week, there's only 21 of those planes, or 20, and only 9 are operational right now. May I strongly suggest you visit the website on therightsideradio.com and listen to last week's show if you did not. It will give you a lot of foundation for this one. And at that time back then, back then, 15 years ago, 52% of the Kiowa helicopters won't be available because of spare parts shortages. Back in the early 2000s, there were 413 Marine aircraft grounded due to safety concerns. The Super Stallion helicopter, the Cobra attack helicopter, the Osprey. I mean, it was just a disaster. And George Bush did very little to alleviate it. Instead, he kept deployments going out. You know, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., etc. Each deployment, for every man you deploy, you need two men behind him. Logistics, support, and maintenance. So when you send a man into combat, or a woman into combat, a soldier into combat, you are really putting three people into the theater of war, so to speak. Which means no rest. It means no family. It means lower morale. And it means higher attrition. People getting out of the service, which forces more recruitment, which means more training. Everything is interdependent on everything else in the military. The amount of logistics which goes into being ready to accomplish your mission, being combat ready, and being able to win when you go into battle is absolutely mind-blowing. We are still likely the best in the world at long-range supply and logistics. You can see what's happening to Russia right across their own border in Ukraine. That would be unlikely to happen with the U.S. military, but the U.S. military has other problems, as you shall see in the rest of the story. By the way, it hasn't changed much. That were considered inadequate, and the funding to fix them was inadequate. 42% of the Army's 24 reserve mechanized battalions did not meet training standards for firing at stationary and moving targets. That's kind of a scary thing. There was a reduction in training at Army schools because there was a shortages in skilled workers such as mechanics. I mean, there's so much that goes into this. And so much contributes to the success or failure of a military force in a combat, in accomplishing their mission. The military has been facing a manpower shortage other than from the years of about 2001 to 2008. And the exception to that normally being the Marines. But back then, 2001 to 2010, Reserve units were also not staffed right. The Army Reserves fell short by 10,300. Navy Select Reserve, 4,700. Air Force Reserve, 3,700. Air National Guard, etc. Right down the list. When they sent out a questionnaire, and morale is so key. I mean, the fighting spirit of your soldiers is key to winning. Think about the Ukrainians. I mean, think about what they're doing against the Russians. The Army sent out in the early 2000s a questionnaire. And they sent it to the junior officer, various forces, 
They expected a 15% response rate. They got a 55% response rate, and 82% were negative responses, citing poor leadership, inadequate pay, lack of compensation, insufficient spare parts, malfunctioning equipment, no mechanics or servicing. And one-third said they did not plan to re-enlist, which gets you into the next conundrum of recruiting and training and money and diversion of money from combat readiness. In 2006, the end of 2006, Representatives Murtha and Obey put together a report on military readiness. They were on the Armed Services Committee. Let me just read you one line. The U.S. Army's preparedness for war has eroded to levels not witnessed by our country in decades. As deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan continue unabated, there is a very real prospect that Army readiness will continue to erode. And they go on. Many Army combat and support units are going to have less than the required one-year period for rest and retraining. The lowest readiness levels for the vast majority of non-deployed units, units that are held in reserve. You know, generally, the military likes to have a unit in combat or in theater, and then a unit replacing them in a year with basically a three-year rotation, one for rest and reset, the next for training and rearming, and the third back to war or the theater. They weren't able to do that in the 2000s. George Bush and the civilians running the military basically pushed the military to its limit with extended deployments and very few leaves and no time for retraining and a shortage of all sorts of skilled people, mechanics, you name it, so that equipment was not in the top shape. I mean, obviously, the more equipment gets used, particularly if it's aging equipment as it was at that time, the more it breaks down, the more maintenance it needs, the more, should we say, re-upping the new technologies that it needs. And they go on in that report. That report, by the way, is on the website, on the rightsideradio.com under military. We have a link to that report. You should read the whole thing. That'll bring you up to speed for the years 2006 to 2008. And then, of course, we had Barack Obama, who, in fact, hates the military. And you can see that right now through President Cadaver with Obama in the background in his third term. And all the work that Trump did for four years to gear up funding, modernize the Army, the Navy, the Marines, build new ships, all being undercut, all being undercut. 2014, under Obama, things were, you know, in sorry shape. Of 341,000 Army National Guard soldiers, only 50,000 were available for mobilization for Army Reserve. 56,000 out of the 190,000 in uniform were available for mobilization. Basically, military readiness declined to levels that we had not seen since the end of the Vietnam War. One half of all the Army units, that's both the deployed and the non-deployed, actives and reserves, received the lowest readiness rating any fully formed unit can receive. Readiness levels by the way, range from one through four. One is you are ready to go and you're ready to win in combat, and four is you shouldn't leave your easy chair. Prior to 9-1-1, only 20% of the Army received this lowest rating. You can see what a precipitous decline it was. And it's the non-deployed units, folks, that are the reserves. If there was a war in Iran, or there was a war in North Korea, or wherever in the world, 
Basically, the degradation of Army readiness here at home effectively eliminated most of the United States Ground Force Strategic Reserve. Of 16 active-duty, non-deployed combat brigades in the United States, most of them were rated at the lowest readiness ratings for most of those years, and most of that was attributable to severe equipment shortages. You know, just step back for a moment and think about us leaving $83 billion worth of tanks and equipment and armored vehicles in Afghanistan for the Taliban. You know, you'd almost think it was on purpose, wouldn't you? Oh, they'd never do that, would they? No, not to us, not to our military. Only four-fifths of non-mobilized Army Reserve units, well, not only, four-fifths of Army Reserve units, non-mobilized, were in the two lowest readiness ratings. Only one in ten were at top readiness. The same was true for the National Guard units. I mean, it was, it was a sorry, sorry state of affairs. You need to read that report because that is the foundation for where we are now, okay? Which is the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. So the GAO, the General Accounting Office, did this huge audit of the military in 18, 19, and 20. And here's what they found. In spite of the military's plans to modernize and up its forces and bring in new technology and all sorts of other stuff. Ground resource readiness ratings. Let me explain first of all. Resource readiness ratings measure the status of personnel, equipment, supplies, and training. Mission capability readiness ratings measure whether a unit can accomplish its designed missions. In other words, can it win? And can it win with a minimum of casualties in a minimum amount of time? Anyway, what they found through 2019 is that ground forces had generally increased their readiness. This is under Trump, of course. Sea forces continued to decline in readiness. Air forces were up in resource readiness. Space, which was a new thing, is up in resource readiness. And cyber was up in resource readiness. However, that's the good news. The bad news, or the rest of the story is that mission capability readiness, in other words, can you go and can you win, was up for ground forces and was down for sea, air, space, and cyber. You know, that does not give you warm fuzzies when you think about what's going on in the world overall. The GAO did another study, which was called Progress and Challenges in Rebuilding Personnel, Equipping, and Training. And what they found was the Army had made some progress, the Navy and Air Force, not much. The Marines were pretty much at status quo and had modernized their equipment to some extent. But Trump wasn't in there long enough to complete the process of turning the military around. And we're in a catch-22 now. And this really is the rest of the story. The military was as much shut down in most ways as the rest of the nation, those who went along with it, on this COVID nonsense. They couldn't train in person. They couldn't recruit in person. As you know, despite manpower being down, recruiting becoming more difficult as morale drops in the Army and the other, and the other forces, what are we doing? Oh, if you don't take a jab, even if you have a religious or whatever exemption, 
then you get booted out of the armed services. We lost many of our best warriors and our most capable and experienced commanders to this nonsense. Once again, you would almost think it was on purpose, wouldn't you? But no, they wouldn't do that, would they? Mm-mm. I'm sure Cadaver and Obama and Austin, you know, Austin, <laughs> the, the Secretary of Dents, yeah, I got that last week. I love it. The Secretary of Dents. This was the guy, folks, who in 2012 and 13 basically said when ISIS was like massing to invade basically the Middle East, but they were on the border of Iraq, said, ah, you don't need to do anything about them, Barack. Nah, they're just a flash in the pan. This is the guy who is now Secretary of Dents. Terrific. Ah, yes, warm fuzzies once again. I just tingle with safety. Tingle, I tell you. And in the meantime, never mind the COVID, never mind the jab mandates, never mind what that's also done, and I've brought you this story, in terms of material adverse effects, particularly to pilots, which we're already short of, okay? Many of the people leaving the military right now are leaving because of the forced sensitivity training. You know, critical race theory, inequality, and white privilege. I mean, we have a training problem, we have a training deficit, we have a readiness problem, but we're spending time that could be training soldiers to stay alive and win on the rest of this nonsense. It's unbelievable. And they've now instituted new physical fitness requirements. The first time in 40 years, of course, I mean, since we're doing so well on readiness, let's just, you know, let's make it more complicated. And there was a RAND research team that found out that the gals and the reservists and the National Guardsmen were all failing miserably at a number of these six-point readiness, physical readiness, individual physical readiness tests. So folks, the rest of the story is that the United States military, while it excels, while the men and women who serve are exceptional patriots, are being led by morons who are being managed by even greater morons who in their heart, in their soul, dislike America, who want America to be, as Barack Obama said, just another seat at the table of nations. And now you know why Russia is in Ukraine or why it was emboldened to go into Ukraine for its own purposes. Now you know why China is poised on Taiwan. Now you know why North Korea is launching ever more sophisticated missiles and Iran is on the verge of developing a nuke. Now you know the rest of the story so that we can strengthen our military, so that we can give them a budget which is not a 1.7% increase from last year as Cadaver Obama are proposing, which is, by government stats, 6% below the inflation rate, a real net 6% loss in funding for the military, and get the entire ship of freedom, of constitution, of faith, family, and military turned around. We need to win elections. And that means we need to do a whole bunch of things, including guarding against the same election fraud that caught everybody unawares in 2020. So your groups out there, you formed. And by the way, go back on the rightsideradio.com, click the Take Action tab, and all these outlines are there for you. 
Do them, folks, if you haven't. Continue doing them if you do. And accelerate. Accelerate. How do you win elections? Once you're organized, you're in your subcommittees, you've got your things going, and you're in your voter registration drive. Number one, you got to register and get others registered to vote. That's number one. If you're not registered to vote, you can't pull the ballot lever. Get on email. Get an email. Get a phone number for text. Some way to communicate with people that you are registering. Some, some way to communicate with people that are coming into your group. This is critical to getting out the vote for the election. This is critical to informing your clan, so to speak, of key issues and events. Next, create a database and a delivery format. There's all sorts of them. SurveyMonkey, Constant Contact. I mean, they're very inexpensive. You can ship out to 100,000 emails without spamming and all this kind of stuff. It's all done automatically. Get that set up. The person who's in charge of all your internet and all that stuff should get this done immediately. And use that database. And use your delivery format. And use that that focus marketing, that image that overrides everything, your mission statement. Get people excited. Get them involved. Get them off the couch. Go with your endorsements. Once you've screened your candidates, you've had the meet and greet, whatever, and you've decided on a candidate you want to back for whatever office, sheriff, mayor, councilman, state legislator, congressman, whatever, do a press release. That press release lets people know you're there. It lets the candidate know you're supporting them. Do interviews with the candidate. And on the website, I mean, be kind of the marketing arm for the candidates that you are endorsing. Sponsor events for the candidate, meets and greets, question and answer forums. And if the opponent is weak, obviously if he's a great orator or she's a great orator, you probably want to avoid this, set up a debate and publicize the hell out of it. And of course... Recruit new members to your group and get people registered to vote at these events. Go with visuals, signage, billboards, yard signs, t-shirts, which are very cheap to make, and you can actually make some money for your group on them. Buttons, also very cheap. Don't overspend on this kind of stuff. Less is more as long as it's highly visible, highly attractive, and keep sending the same message. Election staffing. Your group needs to meet... And you need to figure out who's going to be doing what on election day and the day before election day. Part of the team needs to get out the vote. That's email, phone, and text. And that needs to start five days and go right up to the moment the polls close. I mean, those last 10 voters you get down to the precinct could mean the difference in your election. You've seen it. We had a congresswoman elected by six votes in Iowa. Six votes out of 400,000. And there's plenty of stories like that. Another part of your team needs to be election workers. Another part of your team needs to be election fraud watchers. You need to be checking if people are really registered to vote. You need to have your eyes open so that if Billy walks in, you know Billy moved to uh, Tinbuck 2 three months ago, you're going up to the election staff and saying, this guy is not a resident here. You need to keep your eyes on whether or not these voting machines, which we ought to do away with and go with paper ballots, whether these voting machines are connected to any type of internet, which is illegal. It's how they played the vote last time. Do not let it occur to you. Know the law. Know the rules. Carry them with you. If you have to, have a lawyer come in who knows this stuff and give your group a talk 
a month before the election and hand out the various statutes and laws. Know what the laws are. By the way, have a camera with you. Everything gets recorded. There's pictures of everything. Nothing goes unnoticed in any precinct or any polling place. Line up your legal backup beforehand, folks. And they need to be available, in addition to kind of schooling you and training you, they need to be available 24-7 the day before the election and the day of the election and probably the way the Democratic Marxists like to do it for several days after the election. So let's get with it and contact national groups. We're going to try and have a list of them on the Take Action page, True the Vote, Election Integrity, your county and state organizations, whether they're Libertarian or GOP, doesn't matter. You know, get yourself set up now for the election just six months away. The future of your country, your personal security and finances, and the fate of your family depends on it. We don't have a lot of time left. Let me talk to you about the Nord 2 gas projects, Russia supplying Europe, which is <laughs> the root of the problem right now. And then let's go into the Fed and interest rates and inflation. Oh, you won't like this. And then let's finish up with what we can get done of rat-a-tat-tat, some election-type stuff, some gun-type stuff, and some economic stuff. Well, here we go. The Nord 2 project, that's a 1,230-kilometer pipeline under the Baltic Sea. It was intended to deliver gas from the Russian coast near St. Petersburg to Lubmin in Germany. And it runs parallel to the existing gas pipeline, which went in in 2011. Thank you, Obama. Nord Stream. It's about an $11 billion project. It was between the Russian state-owned energy giant Gazprom and Shell and Engie of France. Those two pipelines could deliver 110 billion cubic meters of gas to 26 million homes in Europe. Gee. Let's aid and abet our enemies, Russia. I mean, I thought Russia was like the bad guy. Didn't we hear that for three years? Oh, yeah, you bet. Right now, Europe imports 35% of its gas and petroleum products from Russia. When this pipeline opens up, it'll go up to 60%. The pipeline was shut down because of the Ukrainian conflict. By the way, Ukraine will lose about $1.2 billion a year in transit fees because Russia will no longer use the overland pipelines that currently go to Europe through Ukraine. You can see how this is a muddy mess. You can also see how in our historical story, a depleted U.S. military is, shall we say, not a deterrent to Russian aggression, nor, unfortunately, will it be a deterrent to any aggression until it's straightened out. All this stuff is tied in, folks. Think about all the wars we have fought over oil, and this one is one more. You know, the Fed is caught kind of in an inflate or die trap. It either lets inflation rip, we know how pleasant that is, with more money printing and ultra-low interest rates, which went on far too long, or it crashes the economy with higher rates and quantitative tightening. In other words, it doesn't buy our own bonds. I mean, think about that. Oh, my God. How would you like to buy your own credit card debt and keep on a-going? Yeah, terrific. And you know how that would end. Well, this ends the same way. Most people, 90% of the population, that would be you and me, you know, kind of we the people, of the people, by the people. We don't get anything from inflation, folks. 
But there's a few people, you know, that 10% at the top and particularly the 1% at the very, very, very tippy top. They need more money printing. They got to fund the U.S. budget, pay their increased salaries there in Congress, Wall Street, the military, except they don't fund the military, and their own kind of bubble era gains, you know, because this is all one big bubble and it ain't a bubble bath. What a wicked world we live in. Now, America's misbegotten foreign policies of the last 20 years is coming home to roost, so to speak. And it's being used as a reason. In other words, an excuse for inflation. I mean, the the nonsense from Biden. And it's being teed up as a reason not to abandon its horrible monetary policy. I mean, it's like a catch-22 of disaster. And we, like Rome have become the empire of debt. More on Rome in just a minute. In fact, I cover Rome in the Fall Civilizations historical series, which is on the website, on the rightsideradio.com. Just go to the historical page, listen to it. It was a four-part series, and it is fascinating over several thousand years. But listen, local hustlers and criminals get rich off of this stuff. Swiss bank accounts get fatter. Ooh, goody. And here at home, Raytheon and General Dynamics and Boeing executives get rich. Lobbyists get rich. Retired generals who join their board of directors get rich. Even their shareholders sometimes get rich. But you and I don't get rich. Just the opposite. So, look, the empire of debt, you know, the old Rome, the new America. The Roman Empire reached its furthest extent under Emperor Trajan. That's T-R-A-J-A-N in about 100 A.D. And thereafter, it was a downhill slide. Rome's currency was the silver denarius. When Augustus first introduced it hundreds of years before, it was 95% silver. A century later, at the time of Trajan, just 100 years, it was 85% silver. And it kept going down from there, folks. By the time of Caracalla, who took over a century after that, the coin was 50% silver. And then by 268, that's 168 years later, there was hardly any silver at all. The empire was beset by corruption and civil war. It limped along for about 200 more years, and then, poof, the Roman Empire was no more. Look, where we're at right now, this is the cold hard facts, okay? That's my job to bring them to you, because it doesn't seem like anybody else does. Right now, we're at goodbye Russian oil in the West, goodbye Ukrainian wheat everywhere, and goodbye, it appears, to domestic energy production if you're in Germany, coal and nuclear is gone, and if you're in America, oil is being pounded into the ground with the rubber mallet of the Green New Deal. This is kind of a disastrous convergence of events. The big European firm Centix, surveying for 20 years monthly thousands in Europe, says consumer confidence has dropped 18 points below zero. America is much the same. The rest of the world is much the same. Even Asia is struggling with stagnation. China has all sorts of economic problems over there. That's a rabbit hole we'll go down on another day. When Biden took office, inflation was 1.4%. A year later, before the Russian invasion, it was over 6%. And as you're going to hear in the rat-a-tat-tat, That ain't the right number either. It's way, way, way higher than that, unfortunately. By the way, every recession we have ever had, with the exception of just one or two, has always been led by a 50% rise in crude oil prices. And every 50% rise in crude has led to a recession. 
1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2008, and now 2020. Buckle up, buckaroos, buckle up. And by the way, do you think that all this stuff, all this pain we're putting ourselves through for nothing, do you think that's hurting Putin? Really? His revenues are up $312 billion a year right now, folks. And the oil is going to his allies and our other enemies. The sanctions are nonsense. They're another hocus-pocus by this government that cares so deeply about your pocketbook and your health. So deeply. Oh, pitter-patter, be still my heart. And now we've given Russia, Iran, China, and others an inroad into taking down the dollar, which along with the military are our two strongest assets. And the military, as we've discussed, is partially degraded. And that brings us to rat-a-tat-tat. Number one on rat-a-tat-tat, Iranian media, the Iranians, are boasting that Russia, the businesses of Russia, are holding meetings with Iran in an attempt to get around U.S. sanctions. And gee, we're letting Russia sit at the table over there on the nuclear negotiations, which should never be ongoing? I mean, how many mistakes can you make? Or are they mistakes? Terrific. By the way, did you know Russia is making a third more on its oil this year than it did last year before the sanctions? It's terrific. Just terrific. Oh, then we have several universities. You know, it's more COVID time, folks. If you don't get your third booster as a student, your internet's going to be cut off. So there, get the jab or don't get the Wi-Fi. That's your choice. Now, on the election front, the Indiana governor signed a bill although it's to the 2024 election, they have that long to do it. Half the counties in Indiana now use microvote voting machines that have no paper record. Oh, what could go wrong? Well, we know what could go wrong. 2020 went wrong. And that makes it impossible for election workers, outside officials, whoever, to do a risk-limiting audit after an election or to recount votes if there's a close election or a legal contest. Well, now those microvote voting machines have to have external printers, and they're called VPATs for Voter Verified Paper Audit Trail. The counties had until December 2029 under the original bill. They've moved that up to 2024. Good for Indiana. Go, Indiana. Let's see more states do it. In fact, better yet, let's get rid of all the machines and go back to paper ballots. You know, Canada does all paper ballots, and they have their election results in one nanosecond, like that night. The same, by the way, with France. Huh, they can do it, but we can't, or some of us don't want to, and why would that be? Let me tell you, you need to be watching this website. We have the link on the upper right-hand side of the homepage on the rightsideradio.com. Do you know what the real inflation rate is, folks, when you add back in rent? and fuel, and food, you know, those things that the government took out, because you don't need a roof, and you don't need to eat, and you certainly don't need to put any fuel in that buggy of yours. How do you like 17.15%, up 1% from February? Terrific. And the United States government's 2021 financial statements? Oh, well, you'll like this. A deficit net worth of $123.5 trillion. Does this kind of bring into focus the lack of funding for the military? Hmm? Yes, it does. Does it kind of get you thinking about Rome? Yeah, it does. And we are out of time. We're always out of time. It's unbelievable. So I want you to look in the mirror. I want you to repeat 
with conviction, maybe with your family, I will muster, I will stand, I will not comply, I will never give in, I will never stop fighting, I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Don't miss next week's show. We got a whole bunch coming at you, including gun control. Have a great week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.